Our sermon this morning is on 2 Kings chapters 23 to 25. We're going to look at the fall of Judah. This is our last sermon uh, as we journey through the book of 2 really 1st and 2 Kings. We did 1st Kings in the spring, summer, and then we did 2 Kings in the, in the fall. And so today we're going to wrap up the whole uh, series. When we started um, in 1 Kings chapter 1, King David was still alive. He was old, but he was still alive. And uh, we saw him die and pass kind of his throne, his kingdom onto his son Solomon. We saw Solomon amass just tons of wealth and wisdom more than anyone on the planet. Uh, Solomon built the temple. He built the palace. But then when he went to pass the kingdom onto his son, it was divided into two. Uh, his son Rehoboam led the, um, the Judah in the south. And then one of his officials, Jeroboam, led kind of a, a, a portion that kind of seceded off of it, uh, Israel in the north. And then we just kind of saw, for the better part of like a, a book and a half, uh, just both of those kingdoms, Israel and Judah, kind of descend into sin and idolatry. Israel first and more quickly in the north, but eventually Judah followed that same uh, trajectory. We saw the ministry of Elijah, who confronted uh, Ahab and Jezebel and the, and the prophets of Baal. Um, we saw him pass his ministry on to Elisha, uh, who, you know, carried on that legacy and, uh, you know, was preaching and teaching and healing and raising people from the, the dead. We saw a series of kings uh, in Israel and in Judah. Some of them were good. Most of them were bad. Most of them, there was the common refrain that they turned away from the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They followed in the footsteps of, of Ahab. They worshipped idols. So it was kind of throughout the majority of 1 Kings into 2 Kings. Uh, in 2 Kings 22 and 23, we looked at last week, we saw the, the life and reign of King Josiah, who was kind of in the minority of kings that was a good, godly, faithful King. He uh, restored the temple building. He renovated the building itself. As they were renovating the building under Josiah's reign, uh, he kind of came across the the book of the law, the, the Old Testament, the, the, the Bible. And so um, <coughs> he had it read to him. He listened to it. He um, purged Israel, purged Judah and, and Israel as well of, of their idolatry. He took all of the idols out of the temple. He restored the appropriate worship to the temple, the, the practice of the, the Passover. Uh, Josiah was a good, faithful, godly king. In chapter 23, verse 29, King Josiah dies in battle. He's killed, and he's replaced by his son Jehoahaz. And we're going to pick up with the reign of King Jehoahaz in chapter 23, verse 31. That's where we're going to pick up today. We're going to cover through there, through the end of the of the book. So, Turn to 2 Kings 23. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find it on page 308. And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to we're going to dive right in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us. We thank you that you have given us the privilege of hearing your word, and we pray that you would help us to listen to it and to obey it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would, would quiet our hearts and focus our attention on you and your word and your glory and your gospel. We pray that you would convict us of our sin and that you would point us to, to Jesus, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, 23, verse 31. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. Verse 32. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So, remember, Jehoahaz is Josiah's son. If you'll remember to last week, Josiah was a good and godly king, but his father, Ammon, was not a good and godly king. And now his son is also not a good and godly king. So in span of two generations, we see a wicked, a wicked king, presumably a bad father, uh, giving birth to and raising a man who becomes a good and godly man and king. And then we see that man who's a good king and presumably a good father, 
giving birth to and raising uh, a, a child who grows up to be a, a wicked, not faithful king. And so he just kind of is reiterating that as important as parenting is and, you know, faithful, godly parents are, there's no guarantee that your being a good parent is going to result in your child being godly or, or faithful. There's principles and trends in Scripture that are usually informed by how important and vital of a ministry parenting is, but there's no guarantees because we're not sovereign and we're not God. <coughs> so be as godly and faithful as, of a parent as you can and pray for your kids and trust that the Lord is going to raise them up and the Lord is going to draw them to himself. That's something that God does. That's not something that we do. Verse 33. And Pharaoh Necho put Jehoahaz in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath that he might not reign in Jerusalem and laid on him on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver and a talent of gold. So Jehoahaz is, has been bested. He has been removed as king, put into, into prison. There's a heavy tax burden on the nation. Verse 34, Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, in, uh, king in place of Josiah, his father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. So Jehoahaz is out. Jehoiakim, his brother, or his half-brother, uh, is now in as the king. He takes Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt, and he died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land and, and to give the money according to the command to Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land. From everyone according to his assessment, he gave it to Pharaoh Necho. Verse 36, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. 37, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. So Josiah is a good king, child number one. Jehoahaz is a bad king, he's dead. Child number two, Jehoiakim, is a bad king as well. Chapter 24, verse 1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. So Pharaoh, he was already effectively Pharaoh's servant. He was Pharaoh's puppet king that he put in place. His sole job was to pay him tribute and to do what he says. And now Nebuchadnezzar comes in. So there's a, a power struggle between Egypt, Pharaoh in Egypt, and Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And Israel is kind of the pinball that's getting, you know, knocked back and forth between these two nations that are in this power struggle. And so now Nebuchadnezzar wants to uh, exact power uh, over uh, Israel. And so for a minute, uh, Jehoiakim, who has been the puppet, kind of the, the, the vassal king of uh, Egypt and Pharaoh, now he becomes the servant, the vassal of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But, not for, but after three years, verse 1, it says, then he rebelled against him. So it's almost like Jehoiakim is thinking, I've, I've had enough. I've had enough of, of you know, being Pharaoh's servant. I've had enough of being Nebuchadnezzar's servant. I'm gonna, you know, we're going to stand or fall based on whether we can assert ourselves in this geopolitical climate. And uh, long story short, they're not able to. Verse 2, the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans, that means Babylonians, Bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, bands of Ammonites. He sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word that he spoke by his servants, the, the prophets. So this kind of last stand that he makes against Nebuchadnezzar does not go well. And we see why it doesn't go well in verse 3. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all he had done. And also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. So, all of these invasions, primarily uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, they don't come because any of these nations are particularly savvy or smart or strong. They, don't, they come because God is sovereign and he wills for it to happen. God was upset at the perpetual, consistent, unrepentant sin of his people. And he's, he's angry, and so he brings judgment. Right? We, a, lot of, a lot of people today try to get God off the hook for suffering, right? Here's an invasion. Here's, here's 
bad things that happen to the people of God, how can we explain it away? How can we make sure that, that God is not implicated in the suffering of his people? The Bible doesn't really feel all that compelled to get God off the hook for human suffering. If we do, it might be because we uh, are operating under the assumption that there's no way that God, if, if I'm suffering, then by definition, that calls into question God's goodness for allowing me to suffer. But the underlying premise beneath that is that I'm smarter than God, I'm, uh, my will is better than God's will, I know better than God whether or not this suffering is actually could be used for good in my life. And the Bible does not share that, that presumption. The Bible doesn't feel the need to get God off the hook for human suffering. The Bible is happy to say this suffering happened and God was sovereign over it because the Bible understands that God is God and we are not God. And so if we think that there's no way that God could be good and allow this suffering to happen, the Bible says, sure it could. Right? Absolutely, God, God is good states that unequivocally, and God is sovereign even over our suffering. That much is stated unequivocally as well. The Bible happily affirms both of those things. So Jehoiakim eventually dies. Uh, in chapter 24, uh, verse 8, he's replaced by his son Jehoiachin, different guy. Jehoiachin uh, is king for all of three months before uh, this attack from Babylon. This oppression and occupation from Babylon goes from bad to worse. And in verse 12, uh, we pick it up and it says, Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and the palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house. <coughs> And cut into pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple which Solomon had made and the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths, and no one remained except for the poorest people of the land. Everything is being plundered. People, resources, valuables are being plundered. Right, Israel, the city of Jerusalem in the region of Judah is being stripped of its power and its, you know, its self-governing capacity. In chapter 24, verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar installs a new king, Zedekiah. The idea is Jehoiachin wasn't playing ball like I wanted him to. Right? He wasn't as compliant of a puppet king as I wanted him to be. He wasn't sending me my money each month like I wanted him to do. So he's out, and this new guy, Zedekiah, is in, and his job is to do what I tell him to do. And Zedekiah does for a minute. And then in chapter 24, verse 20, it says, Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Very similar to what Jehoiakim did at the beginning of the, like the, the, the first chapter. first verse of the chapter, Jehoiakim is rebelling against uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and in the last verse of the chapter, Zedekiah is also rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's starting to, the, the cycle is starting to repeat itself. We're not paying. We're not going to comply. If you want us to do what you say, you've got to come make us. If you want our money, you've got to come take it from us. Which kind of sets the stage for the last chapter of the book where Nebuchadnezzar is going to do that. Uh, once and for all. Chapter 25, verse 1. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month of the tenth day, uh, of the tenth, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine, it was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then... A breach was made in the city, 
And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were all around the city. They went in the direction of Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And they captured the king, and they brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. And they slaughtered the sons of King Zedekiah right before his eyes. And they put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and they bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. This is the king that Nebuchadnezzar handpicked. He says, you're the puppet king that I want to rule over uh, Judah specifically so that you'll do what I want and pay me what I want to be paid. And that king rebelled against him. And now Nebuchadnezzar wants everyone to know that does not, that will not be tolerated, right? Rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar will not fly. So he breaks down the wall, captures the king, mutilates him, cuts his eyes out of his own head. It's gruesome. It's disgusting. His children are murdered right in front of him. It's, it's disgusting. And so, so Nebuchadnezzar is sending a message, you do not rebel against me. I'm the king. You're not the king. If I say pay me money, you pay me money. And if you don't, there are consequences. Verse 8. Then in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, uh, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together, all the whole multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. Everyone, everywhere, handcuffs, chains, hooks in your nose and in your lip, led out of the city against your will. Uh, Babylon at this point has taken the, the city, broken down the wall, they've taken the king, they've destroyed the buildings, they've taken the people. Verse 12, the captain left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So, we're, so leave some behind because we're going to need some slaves. The people that we bring in to resettle this land that we've taken forcibly from you we want some of you to still be here to work the land as, as property and as slaves when, when those people get here. So the city, the king, the buildings, the people. Now we're going to see the temple and the treasures. Verse 13, the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord, the stands on the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, that the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried those off to Babylon. They took away the pots and the shuffles and the snuffers and the dishes of the incense and the vessels, the bronze, all that was there for the simple service, the fire pans and the bowls. What was, the, what was of gold? The captain of the guard took away as gold. And what was of silver? He took away as silver. And as for the two pillars, one, uh, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all the vessels that was beyond weight, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits. And that was on a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, a latticework and pomegranates, bronze, all around the capital, the second pillar with the latticework, right? So, so, so the, the city, the buildings, the people, the king, now the treasures and the utensils that were formerly used for worshiping God. Those have been taken down. They're going to be melted down to make, you know, goblets and and plates for the king of Babylon to use, right? Like in any semblance of holiness or set apartness that any of these things had for the worship of God, they are totally profaned. They're totally defiled because the people of Babylon that are taking them away have no respect for God. Why would they, right? Battles and wars in the ancient world were seen as battles of the gods. Uh, we, we're going to fight you, but really who's fighting is our God is fighting your God. The stronger nation will win because the stronger God is, is enabling and propelling his nation to beat the other one. So, so our gods beat your God, right? We beat you. Our gods beat your God. You're weak because your God is weak. 
We're strong because our gods are strong. That was the mindset in Babylon. But that's not what was happening, right? Like, what, that, that's not, what, what was, it's not that God was weak or impotent and he lost to the gods of Babylon that were more powerful. It's that God sovereignly brought this about intentionally, on purpose, according to his will and his plan as an act of judgment against his people because of their sin. They were misusing the temple. They were not using it as it was intended, as God, as it was designed to be used, and as God intended for it to be used. If we flip back to 1 Kings uh, chapters, you know, 5 through 8, you can see the, the dedicated Solomon building and dedicating uh, the temple. When he dedicates it, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to deliver to David my father. Right? Uh, God promised David uh, a, a temple where he would be worshipped, and God has delivered his promise. Now it was in my heart, uh, it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord. Now the Lord has fulfilled the promise that he made. And I have risen in the place of, this is Solomon speaking, I have risen in the place of David my father to sit on the throne, and I have built a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, which is the covenant of the Lord, that I have made with my fathers. O, o Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth below, keeping his covenant and showing steadfast love to his servants who walk before you. You have spoken with your mouth and you have fulfilled it with your hand. Behold, God, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less can this temple that we have built contain you? Yet please have regard for the prayer of your servant and his plea. O Lord my God, listen to the cry and the prayer of your servant that we pray before you. The temple was built. It was seen as a gift from God to his people, a place where God would dwell, where God's people would gather, where they would worship him. That was the purpose of the temple. That was why it was constructed. But it promptly fell into disarray. They promptly introduced idols to other gods, Baals and Asherahs into the, the temple. They prop, promptly started practicing the sinful practices of the other gods. They had their prostitutes were living in the temple and practicing temple prostitution in the temple, worshiping other gods other than the one true God. And so finally now, God has said, if you're going to misuse the temple that I gave you as a gift, I gave you this temple, it's beautiful, it's ornate, it's extravagant, it's incredible, it's designed to worship me, and if you're going to misuse it and worship other gods with the gift that I gave, I gave you a gift to worship me. If you're going to use the gift that I gave you to worship someone else, something else, I'm going to take it away. The temple that you love so much to worship other gods, I'm going to take it from you because you're not using it to worship me like I intended for it to be done. So the, all of the precious treasures and metals in the temple are carried away to a foreign nation in service of a foreign king and a foreign god. God is saying, you're not this temple that I gave you as a gift, you're not entitled to it. I can take it away whenever I want, and I will take it away if you use it to worship other gods instead of worshiping me. Verse 18. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. He took them from the city. He took an officer who had been found in command of the men of war, five men of the king's council who were found in the city, the secretary of the commander who mustered the people of the land, 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. Right? So we've already, we've already destroyed the city and the wall and the temple and the buildings and the palace, and we've already deported all of these people, and we've, we've plundered the temple and all the treasures that were in it. And now they go and they find uh, these kind of community. We, we already killed Zedekiah, the king, but now we're going to take all of the guys that were like the people that still have pull people that still have uh, influence and sway with the people of Jerusalem, kind of the, the community leaders. We're going to take the, the most, the highest ranking community leaders, round them up, and then in verse 20, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah 
in the, hand, in the land of Hamath. And Judah was taken into exile out of its land. Right? This is a public, a, a public execution as if to say, don't get any ideas. Right? We, we took your king. We cut his eyes out. We took his kids. We killed them in front of him. We're going to take all of the people that were kind of in his, you know, his, his cabinet, as it were, and we're going to kill them publicly. Are you getting the message yet? Do not rebel against us. Do not, do not disobey. Do not get any ideas. We are in control. Any effort of resistance will be met with swift and severe judgment punishment, execution. All of the people that hypothetically would have been the ones that were going to lead a rebellion are dead. And if you try to do what they were going to do, you'll, you'll be dead too. Verse 22, they establish a new governor named Gedaliah, son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, the governor, right? Jehoiakim was a wise guy, he incurred my wrath until he died. Jehoiachin was a wise guy. I put him in prison and installed Zedekiah. Zedekiah was a wise guy. I, I mutilated him and killed his family. Like, when are you going to learn? Verse 23, Then all the captains and their men, they heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah the governor. They came with their men to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Right, Ishmael and Johanan and Sariah and and Jazaniah, right? All of these kind of like so all of the community leaders of Israel have been killed, and so this is that left a void, and so like the next crop of, of strongest men kind of rise up to fill that void, and they're thinking, who's this Gedaliah guy? Like, and who is Nebuchadnezzar to put this Gedaliah guy in charge of of us? We don't want him to be in charge, and Gedaliah. He's trying to kind of, you know, make things calm. Verse 24, he says, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. He's saying, don't you see what's happening? Every time we mount a resistance, we get, we get worked over worse than the time before. So let's just play it cool. I know this is not a good situation. It's not good for you because you don't want Nebuchadnezzar's boot on your neck. It's not good for me because Nebuchadnezzar is going to be applying pressure from above me to keep you docile, and you're going to be applying pressure from beneath me, saying that you want to, to mount a resistance. So this situation is not good for anyone, but let's all just be cool and try to make the best of it. Let's be good citizens, because doing so is only going to make our lives easier. Well, the people don't want to hear that. So verse 25. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, uh, part of the royal family, he came with ten men and he struck down Gedaliah and he put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. So thanks for the advice, Gedaliah. Uh, we appreciate your input telling us that we should submit to Nebuchadnezzar. We'd rather just kill you. And we would rather, you know, we, if we want your opinion, we'll give it to you. But please don't tell us how to, how to handle ourselves under Babylonian occupation. Now, you might think, oh, wow, these are big, strong guys, right? They killed Gedaliah. They killed the people that were there, there with them. So maybe they're about to mount kind of a, 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 you know, a final, maybe they're going to go storm the castle of Nebuchadnezzar and assert themselves once and for all. No. Verse 26, then all the people, both small and great, the captains and the forces, they all arose and they ran to Egypt because they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So this, this uh, assassination of Gedaliah and the people around him wasn't the start of some big rebellion, insurrection that we're going to finally get our independence back from Nebuchadnezzar. It was the last gasp of fight that they had in them before they run away and seek political asylum elsewhere, saying, we have lost, Nebuchadnezzar's going to kill us, our only hope is to run away and hope that we can live out our days in Egypt as refugees. That's where we find ourselves. Cities destroyed, 
The king has been captured. The buildings have been burned to the ground. The people are in captivity. The temple has been looted. The treasures have been taken. The leaders have been killed. What's left of them have fled for their lives. That's the situation in Israel. When first Kings started, David was king. He was the best king. He was faithful. There was peace and prosperity on all sides from just years and years of military victories and expansion of their borders. Solomon was the king. There was prosperity and luxury. Everyone had everything that they could ever want or or need. That's where the story started. And by the end of 2 Kings, there's death and destruction and exile and suffering that came against the people of God at the hand of God because God was bringing judgment against them for their sin. Which is essentially the overarching theme of the books of First and Second Kings. The overarching thing, the big takeaway from First and Second Kings is that there is an appointed time when the judgment of God is going to come against sin and rebellion. And that judgment is very much to be feared. There is an appointed time when the judgment of God is going to come against sin and rebellion, and that judgment is very much to be feared. For, for years, the people of God enjoyed blessing upon blessing. They began to feel entitled to them. They, they disregarded the law of God. They refused to worship God. They were worshiping other gods. And that entire time, no one gave any thought to the fact that judgment might be coming, that we might deserve judgment, that we need to change our ways and turn from our sin to escape God's judgment. No one thought that. No one cared about that. The prevailing thought was, God has not judged us, so therefore we can assume that God will not judge us. In Jeremiah 5, God says, I am going to go through the vine rows of Israel and destroy it, and I will strip away her branches. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. Right? Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 10, uh, God is saying, I'm going to bring judgment because of their sin. And then here's what God sees when he looks at the people as he's preparing this to happen. He says, they have spoken falsely of me, saying, God will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us. Neither shall we see sword or famine. The prophets, who were those people who were saying that judgment is coming, the prophets will become like the wind. The word of God is not in them. Thus it shall be done to them. So God is saying, Judgment is coming because of your sin, and you are saying it's not coming. You are saying that the prophets are stupid and wrong and idiots and losers. The prophets see us having a good time. The prophets see us enjoying ourselves, and they want to keep us from doing... They're jealous. They're jealous of us and all of the fun that we're having. And so they're saying judgment's going to come. Judgment's not going to come. They don't know what they're talking about. We know better than they do. And the book of First and Second Kings is the context in which that, that uh, prophecy was written is a huge banner, a huge neon sign that says the judgment of God is coming. It's terrible. It's awful, and it is very much to be feared. You think that it is foolish to live in fear of some judgment that you think is coming but will never come. But in reality, the most foolish thing you can do is go about your life presuming that judgment will not come 
right up until the moment when it comes. In Luke 17, Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, it's going to be like the days of Noah. In the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage all the way up until the day when Noah entered the ark and then the flood came and destroyed them. It'll be like the days of Lot where they're eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But then when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them. That's what it will be like on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. According to Scripture, the epitome of folly is not to assume that judgment is coming, to live like judgment is coming, even though it's not. Because you're withholding all of these things that you would otherwise be able to enjoy. That's not folly according to the Bible. According to the Bible, the most foolish thing you can do, the most foolish thing that you can think, is to go about your life eating and drinking and recreating and going to work and celebrating the holidays, assuming that you will never, ever experience the judgment of God simply because you have not experienced the judgment of God yet. That is what the Bible describes as folly. There is an appointed time when the judgment of God is going to come against sin and rebellion, and that judgment is very much to be feared. And here's why that judgment is coming. The judgment is coming because of our sin, because of the gravity of our sin, the, the severity of our sin, the seriousness of our sin, the, the sinfulness of our sin. Right? Remember chapter 24, verse 3. Right? This came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight, also because of the innocent blood that had been shed. For, for Manasseh filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon him. So the reason why judgment is coming against the people of God is because of their sin and rebellion against God. One of the reasons why we tend to think that the judgment of God is never going to come is because we don't understand our own sin to be as bad as it really is. Sure, right? Yeah, at, sure, by all means, Ben, I've said, right, nobody's perfect. There's things that I've said that in retrospect... Could have been said better, could have been left unsaid. There's things that I've done that, in retrospect, uh, could have been done better, could have been left undone. Nobody's perfect, everyone makes mistakes, right? We all tend to look at our own sin and think that it's not that bad. Meanwhile, we look at the sins of others and we're completely outraged by that. We're scandalized, we're scandalized by, you know... One side of the aisle is mad about, you know, sexual immorality and the, the breakdown of the family. And the other side is mad about racism and sexism and the abuse of power, right? We all look at other people and look at the sins that they are guilty of. And we think those are the worst sins. Those are the sins that are ruining our society. We would all be better off if people like them didn't commit sins like that. All the while, we are indifferent to or minimizing our own sins that we are guilty of. Or as Jesus puts it, we take the speck out of someone else's eye, but we can't even see the, the massive log that is in our own eye. The reason why many of us assume, many of us live as if, God's judgment is never going to come. The reason why the notion of God's judgment seems so foreign to us is because we fail to understand the gravity and the severity and the seriousness of our own sin. Friends, your sin 
not the sins of other people around you, but your sin is not a trivial matter. It's not simply a mistake, something that you could have done better. Your sin is overt, intentional, high-handed rebellion against the God who created you. God created you in His image. God has ownership rights over you and your body and your life. God is the one who says who you are. God is the one who says what you are supposed to do with your life, with your time, with your money, with your resources, with your decisions, with your relationship. God is the one who owns all of that. God is the one who is entitled to final say over what happens with those things. And sin is when we look at God and we say, you don't tell me what to do. I, I say what I'm going to do. You don't tell me how to spend my time. It's my time. I do what I want. You don't tell me how to spend my money. It's my money, my decision. You don't tell me how to you know, negotiate my relationships. It's my life. It's my choice. I'm the king of this castle that is my life. And no one is allowed to threaten my personal sovereignty in this area. I do what I want. I believe what I want. I'll follow my heart because I'm the, the king. That is the essence of sin. And the reason why it's so offensive to God is because while you are staring him in the face, declaring yourself to be the king of your own life, God is the one who actually is the king. So it's offensive for someone to deny his kingship and assert their own kingship in his place. When Jehoahaz did that to Pharaoh, he got thrown in prison. When Jehoiakim did that to Nebuchadnezzar, he got attacked and defeated. When Jehoiachin did that to Nebuchadnezzar, he got thrown in prison. When Zedekiah did that to Nebuchadnezzar, he got tortured and his family was, was killed. And when a human being does that to the sovereign God of the universe, when, when a human being looks God in the eye and says, you're not the king, you have no authority here, I'm the king, I do what I want. When a human being does that to God, God brings the full weight and fury of his righteous wrath against them in hell forever. There is an appointed time when the judgment of God is going to come against sin and rebellion, and that judgment is very much to be feared. And it's coming because of our sin and the gravity and the severity and the seriousness of it. That is the, the through line of First and Second Kings. But that is not the last word of First and Second Kings. The last word, the last paragraph that we read in this book is not about rebellion, it's not about idolatry, it's not about invasions or captivity or exile. The last word is a word of hope and a word of redemption. Verse 27. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, the king of Judah... In the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, he graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, and he gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And so Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. If you'll remember, Jehoiachin was put in prison by Nebuchadnezzar, who is evil Merodach's uh, father, back in chapter 24, verse 12. So he's been in prison for a long time now, decades, and now Nebuchadnezzar's son comes to power. 
he releases Jehoiachin from prison to live out his days in the royal court. You think, all right, fine. Why do I need to know that? What's the purpose? Why does the book end telling me that? Well, here's why it's important. Because Jehoiachin was of the house and line of Solomon. He was a descendant of David. He was part of he was a Davidic king in the Davidic dynasty. And so this release of Jehoiachin out of prison is a is a glimmer of hope kind of re- reiterating that in spite of how bad things have gotten right we still have hope for the future. Right? If if the book if, if Second Kings ended with chapter twenty five, verse twenty six, right? Uh, all, all these guys, you know, uh, flee to Egypt because they're afraid of Babylon. If that's just the end of the story, full stop, the temple has been destroyed, the lineage of David has come to an end, the Davidic dynasty has been snuffed out, that would be a big problem. Because in Second Samuel seven, God spoke to David and he said I, God, am going to make you, David, into a great name, like the great names of the earth. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. I'm going to give you offspring who will rule over my people. I will be their father. They will be my son. And you, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That's God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. If the book of 2 Kings ends with chapter 25, verse 26, that promise has failed. That promise has been broken. God could not keep it. The nation is gone. The throne is gone. The Davidic dynasty is gone. God's word cannot be trusted. It is not true. Good luck in eternity because you're on your own. God can't save you because God can't keep his promises. That's where we are in chapter 25, verse 26. But verses 27 to 30 show us that the line of David has not been extinguished. There is still a remnant. God's word is still true. God can still be trusted. It might not have looked the way that we wanted to look. It might involve more suffering than we wanted for it to involve, but God's word is still true and his promises are still valid. God promised David that his line would be established forever, and lo and behold, there is the line of David still there. And interestingly enough, on the verge of the Advent season, that same line that Jehoiachin represents is eventually going to culminate with the birth of a little baby in Bethlehem named Jesus. Right? God's promise in 2 Samuel 7 that David will always have a descendant on the throne ruling over the people of God, it makes a brief stop here in 2 Kings 25 to show us that it's still alive, it hasn't gone anywhere, and then eventually it comes to fruition in Luke chapters 1 and 2 with Jesus, the final Davidic king. Right? This account of Jehoiachin being freed from prison to eat at the king's table is a reminder that David's line is still here, God's promise to David is still being kept, and one day there will be the final son of David, who will be born in the city of David, the true and better David, the the ultimate Davidic king, God's own son, who's going to rule over God's people forever. Every other king in Israel sinned and invited the judgment of God in their lives. Jesus committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus was the only king who never sinned and who did not deserve the judgment of God. All of the other ones did. He did not. And yet, Jesus on the cross 
took the judgment of God that He did not deserve, but that we deserve. Jesus took our judgment upon Himself. Jesus bore the punishment that was rightfully ours, that was meant for us, and He, and he took it. Jesus was sinless, and yet He took the judgment and punishment that was meant for sinners, so that sinners could walk free and be saved from the wrath of God and be treated as if they had lived the perfect life of Christ. Friends, there is an appointed time when the judgment of God is going to come against sin and rebellion. And that judgment is very much to be feared. It's coming because of our sin and the gravity and severity of it. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the true and better and final Davidic king, has come to us to suffer in our place and take the judgment of God from us. And Jesus invites us to be saved from that judgment if we will turn from our sin and trust in the sufficiency of his life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus into the world to save sinners like us. We thank you for the, the reign of King Jesus that we will live under forever and ever. We thank you that your promises can be trusted and that your word is true. Lord, we pray that we could live in view of the judgment of God that is coming, knowing that it is real. And Lord, we pray that we could flee from the judgment of God by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray.